welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Obviously, there's two services, and I've done a sermon already today. But just in worship, I just felt the Holy Spirit sort of nudging me to sort of change it up a little bit. Um, I come to America regularly, and uh, as an Australian, we have a privileged status as one of your closest allies of the ESTA system, which means that uh, you don't have to have a visa. You've got to go on this online form. It costs $14 US. Um, and so every two years I have to pay this thing. And uh, it means that you can enter in when all the other nationalities go right. You can go left with the Americans, which is good. And uh, you get to you know, press the machines and stuff like that, and you ask you a couple of questions, and you're in pretty easy. And uh, really interesting... Just the last two months, as I knew I was coming on this trip, I I just really felt God nudging me at night that I needed to pray for favour at the border, which is sort of weird because, you know, I get to go left with the Americans. And, uh, And got to the Homeland Security border crossing uh, and was talking to the guy, and he's asked me the usual questions, which I've got down pat. It's good coming to America because when you say you're a pastor, people don't freak out like they do in Australia. They, they think it's a food um, in Australia. Um, and uh, that, that, as in pastor, pastor, does that even work in the accent? I don't even know. Um, there you go. Maybe you got it now. Uh, pastor, pastor, okay, I got to have a do pastor, pa- anyway, um, and I got to the, the, the Homeland Security guy and uh, did my questions, and, uh, and he asked me these questions about lecturing, and I've, I've lectured before at Fuller, and it's been all fine, and he's like, oh, no worries, sir, we're going to send you uh, to the secondary screening. Now, you do not, you, it, the secondary screening has become quite infamous in Australia. Um, a number of Australians recently, sort of famous Australians, a famous children's uh, writer, have been taken to the secondary screening and actually prevented from coming to the United States. And things have changed, sort of crossing the border. And I'm like, oh, no. And I felt literally that's what God had to actually pray. I had this, this ominous sense that I was going to go into the secondary room. And like, so you're in, we came in through SFO, it's sort of fairly nice. And then you go left and like you all of a sudden enter another world and there's a group of people there looking very nervous and um, it's the people who are trying to cross without visas and it's people who they're concerned with security risks. And all of a sudden you go down and then you enter this other room and it's not nice. And it's very institutional and there's dirty walls and there's the homeless security guys that you, they have out front and then there's the guys that got around the back. And these are like the tough guys. Like these are like, you know, the scarier guys that they don't want to have the face of the country for the nice tourists coming through. <laughs> and um, you sit there and it just changes. There's a whole different power dynamic. And so I'm sitting there and just praying like, God, just give me favour at this border. And, you know, sitting with these nervous people and you see some of them getting taken off into rooms and there's this room, it's like the strip search room and you're like, oh, please, God, no. Um, <laughs> And, um, and I, I really felt like, like that was actually, God got me to pray. And, and eventually I talked to the guy and they ask all these weird questions and you're like, 
you know, where, where are you, you know, he said, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm actually coming to lecture at Fuller Seminary, and where are you staying tonight? And I was like, oh, you know, and you haven't slept for 30 hours, so you're trying to remember everything. Anyway, it's not fun. So after the sort of grilling, he finally believed that I was a, not a security threat, um, and got to enter the country. But I really felt like that was the enemy trying to prevent me. And God actually had me going ahead and praying for that. Because I actually think that part of what he wants me to say here is actually what the enemy was trying to prevent. And I, th- I feel like what, what he wants to say is captured in a couple of passages that I just want to read um, If you want to turn with me to the book of Joshua, we're actually going to look at the last chapter of Joshua. We're going to look at chapter 24. Just to give you some background to this, this is something that is said at the end of Joshua's life. This is his epitaph, um, the eulogy, um, really, for Joshua. Stephen Covey in the 90s, wrote a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he had this illustration or this practice in the book which said that, imagine your funeral. Imagine yourself at your own funeral, snuck in the back. What would you want people to say? It's actually a really powerful practice because what it does is it instantly zeroes you in on what's important. You think about your character. You think about what you've wanted to achieve. And he gets people to do that. He got people to do that because all of a sudden it puts in perspective what you're doing now. I see that and then I look at the screen time function on the iPhone. I think, I don't want to, at my funeral, have Mark spent an average of this a day on his iPhone. All of a sudden, it it puts in real crystal clarity what you want people to say about you at the end of your life. And what we have here is the epitaph of Joshua's life. Just the biblical background to this is that Joshua was a rare ray of light in the Old Testament, which is a story of people trying to follow God, but falling into disobedience. And so that's... This, that, that makes this in, in, even more brighter. Joshua 24, verse 31. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. This is a bright, shining light in a very dark night of the people of God not following God. And yet, in the leadership of Joshua, in this particular time, it's different. People follow God. Joshua and the elders underneath him, even I love that too, it's not just Joshua as the star guy. His influence is diffused and it's it's distributed and it's delegated. Really influential people for God don't make it all about them. They give away what God has given to them. And we have this moment where God breaks through, through the leadership of Joshua. Now, if we go back all the way to the book of Exodus, 
verse 33, we get a little clue as to how Joshua is able to lead in this way, to live this life of impact, which had such resounding effect for good. And it's really interesting. This is at the end of the book of Exodus, and it has a flashback. Whenever a flashback happens in a movie, you know that it's very important. You don't have pointless flashbacks. You'll only ever have a flashback in a movie or a novel when it's something really important, a clue from the past that needs to be revisited. And so we flashback, in a sense, before Joshua has emerged on the scene. We flashback to when Moses is the guy. And Moses is leading the people of God. Moses, who even though he leads the people of God out of Egypt into the promised land, there's this conflicted thing because he doesn't get to see the promised land because of his and Aaron's disobedience. But there's this fantastic little vignette that's just filled with so much imagery. And I really feel this is what God is wanting to say to some of you today. Now, I, I, I say some, and I'll explain that more. I don't think this is for everyone here. There is an invitation that he wants to say today. And he sent some guy from Australia wearing a jacket whilst preaching to the other side of the world to say this to you. To say this to you. Verse 7, 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. This is not the tabernacle. This is another place. The tabernacle was the predecessor to the temple where God's glory dwelt. This is another kind of tent and it's actually outside of the camp. The tabernacle was at the centre of the camp. This is outside the camp, some distance away. And it's the tent of meeting. The place of meeting. Now, this is not a, a meeting place for Israel to get together and have a town hall meeting. This is a different kind of meeting. This is a meeting with God. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went outside, so whenever Moses went out to the tent, all of the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. So just think about this imagery, right? So there's obviously not a public service announcement that Moses is going to go. Moses doesn't get out and blow a shofar, a ram's horn trumpet to say that he's heading to the tent. It'd be a whisper, a murmur would go through the camp. Something's happening. They don't see this concept at this time that you just meet with God wherever. God's theophanies or his appearances are actually rare. So it's not just, hey, I'm just going to pray, God, let's have this meeting now. That's a New Testament concept that comes after Christ. So there's this ripple of anticipation that goes through the camp when all of a sudden they're like, hang on, what's Moses doing? And everyone's watching him. And they all come to the door of their tents and they're watching Moses go by. What's he doing? This is a really interesting kind of influence. This is not a showy, broadcasting kind of influence. This is an influence that's leading by example. It's quiet, yet it's powerful, like an a, a earthquake that shudders under the ground at a deep level that you may not notice straight away, but that rumbling sense that somehow the ground's moving. It's not registering in the kind of tone that we're used to. It's not flashy. It's not showy. 
As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. As the people of God are moving through the wilderness, this cloud comes down. This is the presence of God. This is the cloud that symbolizes God's presence on Mount Sinai when the Torah Torah law is given. This is the cloud that comes in the temple when the temple is filled. This is the cloud that we speak of in Psalms where God comes in a cloud, wrapping it around him as this protective veil so that humans are not extinguished by his presence and his purity and his holiness. So the cloud of God's glory descends. That's why I never wear jackets because that button will get caught on the microphone. Anyway. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. That is a mind-blowing concept in the Old Testament. We used to Abba Father, Daddy God, Jesus is my friend. This is the Old Testament before Jesus has ripped the veil in the temple from top to bottom through his death. The concept of meeting God face to face. This is yada in the Hebrew knowing. This is intimate, close. Here is a human, unclean, mortal, communing with the living God who created the entire universe. Then Moses... And here's the kicker. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses goes. He meets God face to face. The pillar of God's presence comes down. Joshua, the old man who dies who goes to be with the way of all the earth, as the book of Joshua puts it, at the end of his life, elderly, who's run the good race, who has achieved the kind of life that God asks of human, who is the one who is the bright shining light amongst a sea of sin. Where does that authority, where does that spiritual life come from? It comes from hidden foundations that are built where no one can see it. As Moses is there meeting God face to face, communing with God, finding the direction of where God wants to take the people of God. Where is Joshua? Joshua is back here. He's not being seen. He's hidden. But what's he doing? He's dwelling and soaking in God's presence in the hidden places. And that footnote, that illusion there, that is not an accident. That shows us how a life of flourishing is built. It's built first in the hidden places. Public victories are preceded by private victories. Personal change leads to corporate change. Before you can win the world, God has to win the battle in you. He wants to change something in you first. Now we, because of the age that we live in, we've got this completely topsy-turvy, upside down. We want to win the battle of the exterior. We live in the age of the image. We're actually, we just want to create this perfect image. We want to build a building on 
a foundation that doesn't exist. And what this scripture is saying is the foundation that we build on is dwelling in God's presence. What happens in the garden? In the garden, humans fall when Eve and Adam hear the whisper of the serpent who asks a dangerous question. One of the rabbis says it's almost like the serpent, the way that a cobra stands up, it's almost like a question mark. And they, it, it, it brings this question mark into their, into their minds. What if you could be like God? What if you could be like God's? And what that means is that question, that little question, so seemingly innocuous, pulls down what God has created in the garden. Not defeated, but for the moment pulls down. Because what it means is they then swap God's presence I mean, the imagery in the garden is literally like God's like, at one point it says God was walking, they hid from God after the fall happened because he's just walking through the garden in the afternoon. God is so close, he just takes strolls. He's just rocking around. Like, oh, I'm just going to go for my afternoon walk. Oh, there's, who's up there? Oh, that's just God. Um, you know, walking. That's how close he is because the garden is actually a temple. It's his dwelling place. There is no need for temples at that point because the whole of the world is a temple. Adam and Eve are given this commission to actually go forth and multiply. That's not just to have kids. That's to go forth, multiply, teach those kids about God and to actually spread Eden to the ends of the earth. The original plan is that Eden goes to the end of the earth and that the whole world becomes a living temple filled with his presence. You read the scriptures, the Old Testament filled with lines of, so God's glory is spread to the ends of the earth. How's God going to do this plan? Is he going to click his fingers in the sky and all of a sudden just it's going to go around the world? He's going to use humans because God believes in relationships and God believes in partnerships, which means God believes in you more than you do. Now, you may believe in a false kind of self. You may have some hubris and pride in your achievements. This is a different kind of believing in yourself. This is believing in what God has actually called you to. So God has called you to a life, just as he called Adam and Eve, the first humans, to a life of dwelling in his presence. But when Eve swaps that dwelling for the temptation to be like God's, she swaps the presence of God for the presence of self, where you try and replicate everything that the presence is God under your own steam. This is the disease of the modern world. People have all the technology. People have all the freedom in countries like yours and mine. And we're at this point now where all of a sudden we've clicked over from a phase to a new phase. I reckon this phase probably went from, I don't know, the 1980s till about now. <coughs> uh, trust me, it's just water. Water. Um, <coughs> that, actually, I need to have another bed. I didn't. Okay. There's this movie done in, oh, I think it's like 1986. Really bad movie with John Travolta. And it's called The Experts. Has anyone seen this film? That's how successful it was. Like, no one's seen it. Um, 
And the whole premise to this film is that it's this Cold War comedy. And what happens is that the Russians, which actually had this, the Soviet Union had these fake American towns somewhere in, in the Soviet Union, and they built these fake American towns. And they would send their KGB spies to live in these towns to learn how to be Americans. And so this, this was actually a true historical fact. But they take this in this comedy with John Travolta, and this town they have somewhere in the Soviet Union, and the problem is that it hasn't been updated. So it's America, but it's like Leave it to Beaver 1950s America. It's a Norman Rockwell painting. And the KGB spies going there, they're not being equipped to live in contemporary 1980s uh, America. So they decide to kidnap cool guy, John Travolta, who's a New York nightclub uh, owner, and bring him to this town with his mate, who was some big red actor, I can't remember his name. Anyway, so they kidnap these 80s cool hipsters and then they bring them to start a nightclub in... The, OK, you can see now why this movie didn't, didn't do well. OK, so they bring them to this town, you know, this fake American town. And John Travolta rocks up and the KGB goes like, OK, you've got to make this town cool. You've got to make it like America today. And so what he does is he starts this nightclub, but it doesn't go well because all these like American fake American 50s people, Russian agents, they're just not cool. They're like, leave it to beaver, squares. So what he does is there's these two key breakthrough points. And because they want him to stay there, they send in their female agent, because he's getting sick of it. He doesn't like it's a, you know, no one's cool. So they send in their female agent, Kelly Preston. This is when they met. Slight Hollywood sci fact. And, and they send her in as this sort of seductress KGB agent. And she comes and he's at his nightclub and everyone's dancing really, you know, bad and like it's not cool. And all of a sudden she comes on stage and she does this sort of, all I can call it is an 80s sexy dance with him, which is so bad. <laughs> but it's almost like this incredible breakthrough moment where all of a sudden like their purity and innocence for the 50s is gone. And all of a sudden their eyes open. Wow, we can be cool and sexy like John Travolta and Kelly Preston. And all of a sudden, these sort of old people are nudging each other and winking, and it's like, ah, oh, something strange. The sexual revolution happens in one dance. <laughs> then the town just moves a little bit, and then they're still not there. And then John Travolta's other actor, who I forgot his name, says, we need one more thing. We need consumerism. We need to get a whole bunch of stuff, and we need, like, radios, and we need record players, and we need TVs, and we need roller skates and clothes. And so they buy all this stuff from the US and they distribute in this 1950s town. And all of a sudden everyone's cool and they're all now dressed like 80s cool people and they've got like stereos on their shoulders and they've got Walkmans and they're going around on roller skates and they've got little robot like remote control things. And the town now is completely transformed. And they're completely transformed to the American way of life, to consumerism, to sexual freedom. And then they all escape and they get on a plane and they go to America. And that's the end of the movie. And I've spoiled it for you, but I don't care, because I don't think any of you would ever see it. Anyway. <laughs> so what the movie was saying was the dominant narrative and gospel for decades. You just need more individual freedom, sexual freedom, more stuff, and you'll be happy. 
And this was the gospel that was in the air of the West and much of the world for the last few decades. But you're living in real time seeing that gospel fail. Has the internet made us happier? I've got, I've got in my garage books from the 90s which were predicting that the internet would make us happier, that it would bring down totalitarian regimes, and it would bring the world into a global kumbaya utopia, and this is what it was going to do. Has it happened? No. We now are living in an age of hyper-consumerism, where you've got more stuff than people have ever had in history. Are we happy? No. Our anxiety has gone up, and mental health is going up. We've got more stuff than ever before, but we're becoming more unhappy. And the West, which was at the vanguard of these places where in the movie they want to escape to, increasingly people are looking at the West going, in other parts of the world, like, I don't want a part of that. We're now moving from the American century into the Asian century, and a large part of the world's going, I don't want what you guys have got because it's not making you happy, and it's actually making you completely unstable. So you've got China coming up now with its own vision of a new kind of humanity powered by technology and totalitarian rule. So we are at this point where the story that you've been told, that you create your own godlike presence and that will keep you happy, that's now failing in real time. And you're living at the access point. You could have been you know, lived 100 years ago, you're living at this moment, and this moment isn't just another stage to go through. This is an axial point in history. And what this means is tremendous pressure is being put on the church, or is it? What if tremendous pressure is actually being put on a kind of half-committed consumer Christianity? And what if this pressure is actually good? And what if what Leslie Newbigin wrote in 1960 that secularism would come and tear down all structures and leave just left the authority of God and that God would actually use secularism against itself as people stop believing in everything and everything that was a power structure would be exposed. And isn't that happening now? Isn't everyone disillusioned with politics across the globe? Like, that's not just in America, that is global. What would, if, if, if technology and Silicon Valley is being exposed right now, in your lifetime? What if Hollywood is being exposed in your lifetime? What if w Wall Street and big business, since the GFC, is being exposed in your lifetime? And what if the mythology that we've built our nations on, even, even that's being exposed at this time? So you're living through this moment where these things are being exposed. And the reason I say, what if this is actually not a pressure on the church? Because what if the church is actually what Joshua was doing? What if the church is humble people building a foundation, standing in the presence of God, sitting there dwelling with him again, just as we were created for and which we will do at the end of the age? And so what this means is, this is a transitional point. This is a crisis which God has allowed to create. And Charles Malik, the Lebanese Christian philosopher, said, if you look, you'll find Christ in the crisis. And what it means is that a crisis is before you now. Are you going to follow the ways of the world which are delivering unhappiness or are you going to reinvent, re-look at your life and do something new? 
And I believe that is why there is an invitation for some of you today to actually go, you know what? I am sick of the broken system that I'm living out of. I'm experiencing anxiety. I'm experiencing frustration. I'm, I'm experiencing isolation. I want all this stuff and I desire it, but I can't get it. And the horizon always keeps going further. As much as I run for it, I can't get there. And maybe God has allowed you to get to this point of disillusionment. And what if the problem's actually not you? What if you've been beating yourself up? And what if now is the time to stop beating yourself up and trying to achieve it all and running the life script of culture, which is running us into the ground and to actually fall into the arms of God and to do a new thing and to become a Joshua and to sit in that tent and go, I've got nothing. I, I, I don't even want, it's not even about me anymore. It's just about you, Lord. And what if in that giving up of yourself, you actually find yourself? And what if in that, that, that surrender of influence and trying to change the world and be God-like, that you get a different kind of godly influence? The kind of godly influence that is spoken of at the end of Joshua's life. I feel strongly that God, I, I, in worship, I just felt particularly there is 12 people here. I don't know who you are. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up or anything like that, but I just felt like there is the leadership at this church is this incredibly pure thing and it has this incredible vision. And the problem is that often when we go to our churches and we become so used to familiarity almost breeds contempt, I'm not saying you've got contempt, but you get used to what you've got, you guys have got something special. And there's a sense of newness and there's a, there's a young Joshua sense about the leadership and what God's doing here. But in the temple, some of the writings of the temple and Josephus and different people talk about this, that there was almost these stones around the temple which were representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. Brought back in. And I wonder, I just have this sense, and I'm just going to speak it out because I feel the Holy Spirit saying it, that this morning, God is actually asking, this afternoon, God is asking for 12 people to make a significant life change. Some of you, I think in that 12 are young, some not so young. Some in the younger set of those 12 people have never thought that life could be any different. Some in the older set maybe once tried this and have given up. I tried God, but it didn't happen. I tried God and I went for your presence, but these tragedies happened. For you, you need to hear that he is still there, that his presence wants to be with you. For those of you who are younger, this is now the time to build a new foundation. Everything that happened at the moment is a disruption moment, a deconstruction moment. What God wants to take the church into is a rebuilding construction moment. We need to put our hard hats on. We need to become Bob the Builder. Can we build it? We don't have to. He's going to build it for us. You just got to get on his work team. And so God is asking you to be a builder. And I believe in America, particularly at this moment when it's crazy and it's, it's contested and it's divisive and the church 
seems to be one of those powers which is being exposed and humiliated, or the parts of the church they've grabbed onto the flesh, that God wants to do a new thing in the midst of the contested space. And what he wants is he doesn't want churches which are like, hey, look at me. He wants churches that are Joshua on their knees, up the back of the room, praying and pushing into his authority because behold, he does a new thing. Do you see it? Do you see it? And this is one of those places. This is one of those embassies in a high school on a Sunday. And you know what? You're still in the back of the tent room. It hasn't come out of the tent yet. You're not Joshua executing leadership at this point. God's building something, but you have to get around the presence. And so there's this line, if you're one of those 12, what the 12 is, is that you have been living with a foot in one camp of the world and a foot in one camp of Christianity. One of the great lies of the last 20 years of the church was that, hey, you can have everything the world says you can, you can be cool and you can be super relevant and you can be a Christian. And you probably could pull that off for a while. Not anymore. You're a Christian now. You're scum. Good. That's what Jesus said. It's not an excuse to be a plonker. I don't think that translates. An idiot um, or, or dumb. About that and go Bible bashing people. But you're not going to fit in. Cool. Embrace it. Now, what we'll speak through is actually the Holy Spirit in you where people will see something different in you. And the people who are hungry, the people who were good soil, the meek, the poor, the people hungry after God will see you and go, I, I want that. Maybe while the other seven people in the room are sniggering at you. So we're at this moment where God's saying to 12 of you, and I don't know, maybe there's more, maybe that's just a, a biblical number, I don't know, but I feel like there's 12 people who are not on staff, not even necessary leaders at this point in this church. And he's saying, I want you to start a foundation. Because the engine at the front of the train, there's people in there throwing coal into that engine. But I need more people to get in there to power where this thing's going. I need more contenders. I need more prayers. I need more interceders. I need more evangelists. I need more prophets. And people not seeing themselves as leaders now, you need to get in the prayer room with Joshua on your knees because he wants to do something new amongst you. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.